Thanks for checking out this week's message as we continue with the series, I Am Who I Am. This week, we encounter Jesus' third I Am statement, where he states, I am the door. Let's listen in as Trey leads us in the subject of seeing who Jesus is as the door of salvation. Third week in the series we've been in called I Am Who I Am, where we've been looking at each of Jesus' I Am statements that are found in the Gospel of John. And so I want us to jump right into the scripture that God has brought us to in John chapter 10 tonight. And if you'll remember last week in John chapter 9 when we left off, we watched as Jesus healed a blind beggar and then he asserted himself as the light of the world. And as we came to the end of that narrative, the Pharisees had become so mad at the man that was healed by Jesus that they cast him out of the synagogue and essentially threw him out of the religion. Remember they brought the man in and they questioned him and they're like, how in the world is a man who was born blind now able to see? And he tells them, I'm telling you, this guy Jesus showed up, he touched my eyes, and now I have my sight again. And they sent him on his way and they still didn't believe his story, so they called his parents in and they asked, is this really your son? Was he seriously born blind? Because now all of a sudden he can see and things just don't add up. And they say, hey, yeah, that's him. Uh, but he can answer for himself. Yes, he was born blind. He can see. I don't know how it happened. Why don't you ask him? And so they called him back in again. They begin to question him all over again. Hey, how in the world, if you were born blind, can you now all of a sudden see? And he says, I'm telling you guys, Jesus, Jesus healed my vision. And they became so enraged because of the claims that Jesus was making. Every time Jesus says, I am, he asserts himself to be God himself. And it drove the religious people mad. How could this carpenter's son from Nazareth be the Messiah? And they couldn't handle it. And they got so enraged at this guy because he kept claiming that Jesus had healed him that they threw him out of the synagogue and essentially kicked him out of the religion of Judaism. So we pick up in John chapter 10 and verse 1. And the story really continues from where we left in chapter 9. And Jesus is speaking to the crowd of religious people that are still standing around. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought, all, brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. And so here we encounter the third I am statement that Jesus makes where he demonstrates the truth that he is the door. Which will serve as a subject for this message tonight. I am the door. And as Jesus is talking with the people, he uses what would have been a very common and familiar illustration for that time, which was the picture of the sheepfold. And so that time in the eastern regions of the world, 
it was a common scene to see certain sections of pasture blocked off by a stone wall. And that stone wall would completely enclose all the way around, and there would be no other point of entry other than one single door. And they called that a sheepfold. And so as nighttime came, the shepherd would, would lead the people into to the sheepfold, and they would be closed up on the inside. So it was designed for it to be inescapable for the sheep. Only one way in and one way out, and that was through the door. And the only person that could enter through the door would be the true shepherd. And so as nighttime would fall, there would be either the shepherd himself or there would be a gatekeeper that laid in front of the entrance to the door to make sure that nobody else came in by the door. So the only way anybody was getting in, whether they be thieves or robbers, would be to either come up with some form of deception to look like the shepherd and walk through the door himself, or to climb over the wall that enclosed the sheep on the inside. And so Jesus gives this illustration, but you notice the be such a simple illustration, especially for that time period, the people had a hard time understanding it. Verse 6 says this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So the text tells us that the people didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them or why exactly he was saying it to them. And so he spoke to them a second time, but from a different perspective. And sometimes our perspective has to be changed in order for us to receive understanding. And so he speaks to them again in verse 7. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Keep in mind that the people that Jesus is speaking to right now were the religious leaders of those times. They were the ministers. They were the pastors, so to speak. And Jesus is speaking to them. They were supposed to be the ones that were caring for the people. They were supposed to be the ones that were watching over them, that were shepherding their souls. But they didn't care about the people. They only cared about themselves. They didn't have compassion for the people around them. They didn't have a love for the people around them. They only cared about themselves and how they could self-benefit from picking on the weak and the needy and exploiting their needs for their self-benefit. I mean, look at what they had just done to this blind beggar. Just because he made the claim that Jesus had healed him, they got so mad at him that they just threw him out of the synagogue, threw him out of the, re the religion. Imagine being a part of a church where if you claimed that Jesus was your healer, the pastor walked over to your seat, picked you up by your shirt, drug you to the door and said, that's enough of that, and threw you out. That's essentially what has happened to this man. And Jesus' words cut to the core because he's essentially calling them the thieves and the robbers. Look back in chapter 9 real quick. And in verse 35, they had thrown this man out. And I want you to see this real quick before we dive into the meat of this message. Verse 35 of chapter 9 says that Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? It's funny how Jesus always sought out those who had been cast out. And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. 
Simple message tonight. Simple statement from Jesus. I am the door. And Jesus Christ as the door means a couple of things that I want us to see tonight. Jesus Christ as the door, number one, he provides a way out. As the door, he provides a way out. So as we picture the illustration of the sheepfold that Jesus gave, we see the sheep inside the fold. So just imagine you're walking through the countryside and you look over and there's this, there's this rounded off portion of a pasture and there's a stone wall and there's one door. So there's one way in, there's one way out. And you look in and there's the sheep on the inside and they're confined just to that space. They can't go anywhere else. It was designed to be inescapable for them. So they were trapped inside the sheepfold. This blind man along with so many others during that time, and even today, they for so long had been trapped inside the walls of religion. For so long they had been trapped, hear me, on the wall, inside the walls of religion. This man was trapped on the inside of those walls. These religious leaders, they didn't realize it, but they were trapped on the inside of those walls. The weight of legalistic obligation that had been forced on them by false shepherds was unbearable. It is, unbear it is an unbearable weight, men and women, to try and live a religious life. It's what prompted Jesus to say in the Gospel of Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In, contact, in context, he's speaking to those who are carrying the burden of trying to fulfill the obligations of the law. It's heavy. It's burdensome. And so for so long, these people had, had to carry that weight, and they really felt like there was no escape from it. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, and he says, I am the door. I am the door that provides a way out. Jesus made it possible for this man to be set free from what had held him captive for so long. But you know, it wasn't merely religion that held them captive. It was something a lot more serious than that. It was sin. It was their sin that held them captive. Because that's exactly what sin does. And for each and every one of us, we face the same entrapment. We're trapped inside the walls that our sins have built around us. And that's exactly what sin does. It entraps you. It grips your life. It grips your life in a way in which you can't escape. And we've all been sucked in by the trap. Well, that's kind of an unfair assumption, right? I mean, come on, Trey, you don't know me like that. You can't walk up into my business and call me a sinner like that. It's becoming more and more popular in our society today. Man, you can't judge me like that. You can't call me a sinner. Who are you to look at me, look at my life like that and make a judgment? Call me a sinner like that. It's not my judgment, it's God's. Because His Word tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So don't consider it a judgment, just consider it good company, so to speak, because everybody in here has been a part of it. And so they, they're entrapped by their sin, just like we are. Sin entraps, it entangles, it grips your life. And just like the sheep inside the fold that can't go anywhere, no way for them to get out. How many of you ever seen a sheep open a door? I didn't think so. I didn't know if maybe like some kind of carnival act out there somewhere where somebody had trained a sheep to actually open a door, but I didn't figure that was the case. Sheep don't open doors, in other words. 
They're stuck on the inside. The only way they're getting out is if somebody opens the door and leads them out of the place that they have been confined to for so long. And so as we look at our lives, it's what sin does to us. It, it keeps us entrapped. It keeps us confined to a certain space. And there's no way that we're getting out unless somebody opens the door for us. So we're trapped. We're stuck. And there's nowhere for us to go. And you can try. A lot of people try to find their way out. But it doesn't work. And so essentially we're held captive by our sins. And you can try to get out all you want, but it doesn't work. So we're held captive by our sins of lying. And we're held captive by our sins of disobedience. We can't get out. I'm held captive by my sins of enviness. I'm held captive by my sins of greed, by my sins of jealousy, by my sins of pride. I'm held captive by my sins of greed. I'm held captive by my pornography addiction. I'm held captive by my immoral acts that I just can't seem to stop doing. Even though I want to, even though I so desperately want to get out of the situation, I can't. I'm held captive by my flesh. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, I am the door. And when he takes over as the door, he provides a way out that you couldn't have for yourself. And I know what it's like to be confined for so long that when the door actually does open, you're a little bit skeptical at first, right? You're like, I don't know what to do, like, and we're so helpless that in and of ourselves, we won't even walk out when somebody opens the door for us. But Jesus is so good, and Jesus is so gracious that he stands at the door after opening, and he says, come on, follow me out. And so we ease out. And we get a little more confident. And we're like, oh, yeah. Man, this is much better. There's a whole lot of pasture out here. My whole life was spent thinking that this is all that I have, what I was confined to. Jesus as a door made it possible. Listen, listen. Jesus as a door made it possible for you to be set free from the sins that have held you captive. And it's good news. He provides a way out. And we see examples of this all throughout Scripture in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in prison for sharing the name of Jesus. So they're in the jail cells and they're, they're shackled up. And they're actually singing songs of praise and worship to God. And around midnight as they're doing so, listen to what God's Word says. In Acts chapter 16 verse 26 says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So these men of God are sitting in this jail cell and they're singing songs of praise to God. And all of a sudden, without warning, the ground shakes, the doors swing open, and their shackles fall off. 
That is a picture of what Jesus does when a sinner comes home. He swings the door open so that you can walk through. He takes off the shackles that you've been held in bondage by for so long to your own sin and your own shame, and He sets you free. He provides a way out. Man, some of you walked in here tonight not even realizing that you've been confined and constrained for so long. Jesus has opened the door. He's providing for you a way out. I told you guys two weeks ago, I don't know if you remember or not, but I told you two weeks ago as we started this series that this world has nothing for you. And you may think that you have freedom, but you're actually being held captive. And that little confined area, here's the deal, here's, here's how Satan works. That little confined area that the world has placed you in, it may seem pretty good if it's all that you've ever known. But man, if you will walk through the door of Jesus Christ tonight, your eyes will be opened up to something so much greater than you ever imagined. There's so much more that He has for you. He's got something so much greater for you to step into tonight. Do you believe it? I hope you do. And I don't get up here just to hear myself talk. There's a reason why I get up here and I proclaim these things to you guys is because I know that they're true. I've seen them in my own life. I've lived in that confined space. And I thought that it was the greatest thing ever until Jesus opened up the door and he led me out and I began to realize, man, what God has for me is so much greater than anything this world has to offer. So much greater. He provides a way out. But it doesn't end there. It's not just that Jesus provides a way out. As the door, he also provides a way in. He leads us out so that he might take us in. But what exactly does Jesus provide a way into? Good question. Let's see if we can find an answer, and I think that we can, in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. What does Jesus provide a way into? Salvation. Salvation. He is the door. That's what he means. When he says, I am the door, he's literally saying, I am the door of salvation. He makes it possible for us to enter into eternal life. To find forgiveness for your sins. And not just that, but freedom from yourself. One of the greatest works that Christ can do in a person's life is to set them free from self. And you don't realize that until you see yourself in the light of the glory of God. Because when that happens, you begin to realize just how wretched and pathetic you are. But how great and how marvelous He is to lead you out and bring you in. But here's the deal. It's our choice to decide whether or not we're going to walk through that door. Jesus doesn't drag you through the door. Jesus doesn't put a gun to your back and force you through the door. It's your choice. 
It's your choice to decide if you're going to walk through the door of salvation that he has opened up to you. And when you do, not only do you find salvation provided for, but you find something else. Go back to verse 9. And the second part of that verse says that you will go in and out and find pasture. And then he says in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When you decide to walk through that door that Jesus has opened to you, not only do you find salvation, you find abundant life. That word abundant, it carries with it the idea of fullness. So many people, I feel, reject Jesus because they think a life surrendered to him is lifeless, it's boring, it's restrictive. I mean, who wants to do all that Jesus stuff, right? Like, I mean, I don't want to, you guys, you go to a building, you go to the same building every Sunday and every Wednesday, you go into some small group in between, oftentimes it just seems like it's a big obligation to follow Jesus. Like, I've got a lot of other things going on in my life, I'm busy I go to school, I work a job, I got all these things I want to own. I want to have time for myself. I want to live my life to the fullest. I don't want to do all that Jesus stuff, man. It's too restrictive. You gotta, not only are you going to the same building twice or three times a week, you also got this big gigantic book full of all these rules and guidelines that tells you what you can and can't do. What kind of life is that? I don't want none of this Jesus stuff. All he does is bow me up. He, he bogs me down with obligations. I can't do what I want to do and be who I want to be when I want to do it and when I want to be it. And so people time and time again reject Jesus on the premise that they think it's going to be some kind of lifeless, pathetic lifestyle. I'm just going to shoot this one as straight as I can. Life apart from Jesus isn't living at its fullest, it's living at its dullest. Jesus doesn't call us to some dull, lifeless, pathetic existence devoid of purpose. That's a lie. Instead, he provides a way for us to enter into a life that is full, into a life that is joyful, into a life that experiences blessings from his hand into a life that carries with it amazing potential and purpose. You won't fulfill your potential and you won't find purpose apart from Christ. And make no mistake about it though, Satan doesn't want you to have this or experience it. I'll say that one again just because I know he's fighting in this room right now. Satan does not want you to have this kind of life or to experience it. That's why Jesus said at the beginning of verse 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's making a reference to Satan. He doesn't want you to have the abundant life. He doesn't want you to have eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. He is only concerned about one thing, stealing, killing, and destroying, and he will do so by whatever means he has to. He will take the cheap shot. He's a liar. You understand that? When he opens his mouth, he is lying. God's Word tells us that when, when Satan speaks, he speaks lies. It's his native tongue. There is never a time that he opens his mouth that it's not a lie. 
He's a murderer. And he does not want you to hear what God is proclaiming to you tonight. I promise you he doesn't. For some of you, you may think, well, I don't know about all this stuff. I mean, this, this heaven and hell stuff, I don't, I don't know if I really buy into all that. But here's the deal. Some of you, lacking in a relationship with Jesus from the moment you walked into this place tonight, you have found distraction after distraction after distraction. You have found it so difficult to listen to anything that I've said tonight. That is proof to testify that he doesn't want you to hear. He's a thief. He's a murderer, and he destroys. That's always been his plan of action. Even when Adam and Eve were in the garden, his plan was to steal their peace, kill them with sin, and destroy their relationship with God. And it looked pretty successful, didn't it? Because he got them to bite into that apple and forever stole the peace that they had. And once they did that, they sinned against God, and sin crept in, so now death follows with it. Steal. Kill. Once sin enters into a relationship between us and God, it severs it. Destroyed. Destroyed relationship. Satan thinks, yes. Got him. But God had a separate plan in place. He's going to make a way for things to be made right. But Satan sticks with the same plan of action. He's still using it. And as Jesus comes to this earth, he tries the same thing all over again. He says, you know what? You can send Jesus to this earth, but guess what? Guess what, God? I'm going to steal your glory. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to kill your son. And just to take one last blow to do you in, God. I'm going to destroy your plan of salvation for these people. And as Christ breathed his last breath on the cross, Satan once again thought, Got it. But on the third day, on the third day, Jesus took up his life again. And as he did so, gave Satan a little reminder. Where you come to steal, kill, destroy, I've come to give life abundantly. And there is nothing that you or anybody else can do about it. What's that song we just sung? Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. There's an interesting verse in Genesis after Satan thought he had won a battle there with God where God makes a promise of salvation in chapter 3 and verse 15. Look it up sometime. But God says, here's what's going to happen, Satan, since you've done this. From now on, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring. And you shall bruise his heel, but guess what? He'll bruise your head. And I know I might be taking things out of context just a little bit, but I think God's given me a little bit of privilege on this one right here. And you know why I think 
You know why I think Jesus' heel is bruised? Because <laughs> he came out of that grave and stomped on that head so hard it left a bruise. And every time somebody receives life in Christ, it's another stomp on Satan's head. And another stomp on Satan's head. And another stomp on Satan's head. And when somebody gives their life to Jesus tonight, guess what? Another stomp on Satan's head. And when you stomp hard enough, long enough, it doesn't matter if it's something soft or if it's something hard. Sooner or later, that heel is going to get bruised. And I like the fact that my Savior has a bruised heel because it means that he walked up to my enemy and he stomped on that head so hard that it not just bruised his heel, it crushed his head. That was the cost of providing a way in. Some of you here tonight, you need to walk through the door of salvation. Stop putting it off. You know God's calling you out of what you've been confined to for so long. He's trying to bring you into abundant and eternal life. But you've got to go through the door. You've got to take that step that he's already taken towards you. But I know there's a lot of us in here tonight that have already went through that door. You've already felt God's pull upon your life. And you decided to walk through the door of salvation that Christ has opened to you. And I've got one challenge for you tonight. Just one challenge. You guys know that yesterday was 9-11. And all throughout the day, our nation reflected on that fateful day that happened 17 years ago. It's crazy it's been that long. We took time to reflect on the events of that day. And I was sitting in my office and I was reading through some things. And I came across a story of a guy named Tom Burnett. Tom Burnett was a guy who was on U.S. Flight 93, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And I found a transcript of the phone calls that he made to his wife while he was on the plane. And I want you to listen to what he says to his wife as, as we go through the conversation that they have between each other. At 6.27 a.m., he made his first call to his wife, Dina. And she picks up the phone and says, hello. And he says, Dina. She says, Tom, are you okay? And he says, no, I'm not. I'm on an airplane that has just been hijacked. She says, hijacked? He says, yes. And they just knifed the guy. She asks him, a passenger? And he says, yes. And she says, where are you? Are you in the air? He says, yes, yes, just listen. Our airplane has been hijacked. It's United Flight 93 from Newark to San Francisco. We are in the air. The hijackers have already knifed a guy. One of them has a gun. And they are telling us there's a bomb on board. Please call the authorities. And he hung up. But at 631, she calls 911. And at 634, while she's talking to the 911 operators, he calls back and she picks up the phone. Hello? And Tom says, they're in the cockpit. The guy they knifed is dead. She says, he's dead? Tom says, yes, I tried to help him, but I couldn't get a pulse. She says, Tom, they are hijacking planes all up and down the East Coast. They're taking them and hitting designated targets. They've already hit both towers of the World Trade Center. He says, they're talking about crashing this plane. Then he pauses. Oh, my God. It's a suicide mission. He begins to inform the people sitting around him. And she asks him, who are you talking to? And he says, my seatmate. Do you know which airline is involved? And she says, no, they don't know if they're commercial airlines or not. 
The news reporters are speculating cargo planes, private planes, and commercial. No one knows. He asks, how many planes are there? She says, they're not sure. At least three, maybe more. He says, okay, okay. Do you know who is involved? She says, no. He says, we're turning back toward New York. We're going back to the World Trade Center. No, wait. We're turning back the other way. We're going south. And she asks him, what do you see? And he says, just a minute, I'm looking. I don't see anything. We're over a rural area. It's just fields. I've got to go. And he hung up. At 6.45, he calls back for the third time. And she answers and he says, Dina. She says, Tom, you're okay. So at this point, the plane had just hit the Pentagon. And she thought that he was in that plane. And so when he called back, she was overwhelmed with relief at first because she thought that he had been in that crash, but he was okay. But that's not the case. And he says, no, I'm not. She tells him they just hit the Pentagon. And he tells the people sitting around him that the Pentagon has been hit as well. And then he says, okay, okay, what else can you tell me? And she says, they think five airplanes have been hijacked. One is still on the ground. And they believe all of them are commercial planes. I haven't heard them say which airline, but all of them have originated on the East Coast. And he says, do you know who is involved? And she says, no. And he says, what is the probability of their having a bomb on board? I don't think they have one. I think they're just telling us that for crowd control. She says a plane can survive a bomb if it's in the right place. He asked, did you call the authorities? She says, yes, they didn't know anything about your plane. And he says, they're talking about crashing this plane into the ground. We have to do something. I'm putting a plan together. She asks, who's helping you? He responds, different people, several people. There's a group of us, don't worry. I'll call you back. At 6.54, the fourth phone call comes in. She answers the phone and says, Tom? He says, hi, anything new? And she says, no. He says, where are the kids? She says, they're fine. They're sitting at the table having breakfast, and they're asking to talk to you. And he says, tell them I'll talk to them later. And she says, I called your parents. They know your plane has been hijacked. And he says, oh, you shouldn't have worried them. How are they doing? And she says, they're okay. Mary and Martha are with them. It's funny because Jesus knew a couple of ladies named Mary and Martha. And Tom says, good. And he takes a long pause. We're waiting until we're over a, a rural area. And we're going to take back the airplane. Dina says, no. Sit down. Be still. Be quiet. Don't draw attention to yourself. He says, Dina, if they're going to crash this plane into the ground, we're going to have to do something. She asks, what about the authorities? He says, we can't wait for the authorities. I don't know what they could do anyway. It's up to us. I think we can do it. She asks, what do you want me to do? He says, pray, Dina. Just pray. After a long pause, she says, I love you. And he says, don't worry. We're going to do something. And then he hung up. My question to you guys is, as believers, considering what we just read, as this man is sitting on the plane, he knows that unless he does something, hundreds, if not thousands of people, 
are going to lose their life. And he's in a position to where he can take action to prevent that from ever happening. He knows about the news. He knows they've hit the World Trade Center. He knows they've hit the Pentagon. He knows that these guys have no good intentions of landing this plane safely on the ground. In his heart, he knows if I don't take action, hundreds, thousands of people are about to lose their lives. So let me ask you something, believers. Those of us that have entered through the door of salvation and God has placed you inside his kingdom, we know that there's hundreds of thousands of lost people around us each and every day that if somebody doesn't do something, they will breathe their last breath and they will spend an eternity in separation from God in a place called hell. And God has put us in a position to do something about it. He has put us in a position where He can use your life and the purpose that He has laid out for it to literally lead people to Jesus that could ultimately lead to the salvation of hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives. Let me ask you something. Are you going to do something about it? Or are you just going to sit in your seat and ride it out? Tom could have just sat there and hoped for the best. Maybe they'll send somebody to rescue us. Maybe somebody will come and give us an escort to the ground. Maybe there's some way we can get out of this alive. But he instead chose to take action. His actions saved countless lives. What are you going to do, Christian? With the position God's placed you in. You're going to sit there in your seat and just ride it out and hope maybe somebody else will come. Maybe somebody else will. Maybe they'll send a rescue mission. Or are you going to get up and take action? bringing people to Jesus allowing Him to use you to help save hundreds if not thousands of lives thanks for listening to the message we hope that you will continue to join us each week as we journey through Jesus' I Am statements we're trusting that God is going to show us some mighty things about who He is through those two words so be sure to meet us here again next week